0: It is a joy to be here, and I can speak on behalf of both the elders and the ministry staff. We love this church, and uh, we love serving this church. It really is a, a privilege and a joy, and we're thankful to be able to do it. Grateful to be set aside to spend ourselves so that you might be conformed to Jesus. Well, welcome back. We're in Romans nine. Thank you for coming back. I'm a little. I was. Uh, so I was just curious how it would go after Romans chapter nine. So you returned. You must have been predestined to be here this morning. (laughs) We're going to finish up Romans 9, and let me summarize where we've been. We are in the deep waters of the Bible. Romans 9 to 11 is dense, and that's why so many avoid it. It's just dense, heavy going. Some of you are like, hey, the whole book's been heavy going. Well, it's even deeper here, and uh, it's a literary unit. And so we're taking bigger chunks than we might normally so that we can just keep the big picture before us. So he begins in Romans 9, just to summarize where we've been. And he mentions several of the privileges that the Jewish people had in the first five verses. And he talks about how broken he is because they're not coming to Christ. Even though God has given them so much, they are rejecting the Messiah and persecuting the church. And so he asks the question that anyone in this time period would be asking. Well, if Israel is rejecting the gospel, has God's word failed? And he answers there in 9 verse 6, No. And then he tells us why the rest of the chapter. Because God never intended to save every physical Israelite. He tells us only those whom God has chosen. Only the elect. And he used Isaac and Ishmael as an example from Genesis. And then he used Jacob and Esau as examples. And then he teaches about God's sovereign grace and he anticipates some objections. Does this make God unfair? Does this make God unjust? And he said, no, by no means. And his answer to summarize is God can... Have mercy on whom he wills, and God can harden whom he wills. And then someone would object, well, well, why does he still find fault? And he answers, because God is free to do whatever he wants. It's of the essence and nature of God's character to be free from constraints. He's sovereign. That's his response. And we ended in 922 and twenty-three, And then our section for today, 924 to 105, is going to flesh that out. So let's read Romans 922. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 889. And we'll read through to chapter 10, verse 4. So Romans 9, 22. Picking up his train of thought where we left off last week. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared, before, prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Now he's going to describe these vessels of mercy. Verse 24. Even us whom he has called not from the Jews only but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea those who are not my people I will call my people and her who is not Beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But what Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. But not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law. For righteousness to everyone who believes. Let's pray together. Father, would you warm our hearts To these truths. These are deep truths. These are dense truths, but these are glorious truths. And would you warm our hearts, wake us up? Would you kindle our affection? The things we're going to be talking about this morning should move us, should move how we think, should move how we feel, and then should move how we act. And so, would you, by your Spirit, do that in us through your word this morning? Father, I pray for anyone in here that's living the life of a hypocrite. Anyone in here that might be two-faced, living a double life, Lord, would you convict them this morning? Would you lead them to repentance? Would you show them the good way? Lord, I pray for those who are trusting in themselves this morning. Would you help them to see it's a futile attempt and would they lay hold of Christ and Christ alone? Lord, we're thankful for the ministry staff, thankful for the elders that you have given to this church. It's a gift, your word says. You t- you're taking care of your church through the gift of leaders, and Lord, I'm thankful for them. I'm thankful for so many ways that you've wired them and gifted them, but above all, Lord, I'm thankful for their character. I'm thankful that you've done a work in their lives. They're holy men and women. They fear you. Thank you. What a gift to any church to have leaders who want to see Christ exalted. If I open our eyes to see beautiful things in your word this morning. We pray it in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Three points from our passage this morning a new people, and then two types of righteousness. So first, a new people, verses 24 to 29. Read with me again, verse 24. Even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only but also from the Gentiles. So again, we picked it up. He was talking about these objects of mercy, and now he tells us more about who are these objects of mercy that were prepared in advance. Well, who are they? They are those whom he calls. Remember, we've seen that word quite a bit. Call in the Apostle Paul's writing means an effective call. It's a sovereign summons, and it comes through the gospel. So as the gospel is shared or preached, the Spirit sovereignly summons those whom he has chosen to faith because we've seen remember in Romans we're unable to respond to God on our own because of our sin we're unwilling to come to him we need help we're running the opposite direction and through the gospel God calls us to faith in fact maybe you saw the hoopla about Kanye West I watched the little clip with Kanye and Kimmel he showed up in Brooklyn and I loved the way he described what had happened to him he said God called me I'm like man must have been reading Romans Romans 1, we're called to belong to Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, we're called to be saints. It overcomes our resistance. It's grace. 1 Corinthians 1, 9, called into the fellowship of the Son. 1 Corinthians 1, 22, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called. Both Jews and Greeks, Christ becomes the power of God and the wisdom of God. 2 Timothy 1.9, God called us to a holy calling, not because of works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Here we see that coming out of Romans 9, calling and election go together. We saw that in Romans 9.11. God effectively calls those whom he has chosen. That's why I remember there's that golden chain of redemption. We are those who have been foreknown, predestined, called, justified, will be glorified. They all go together in God's grand purpose of salvation. And God called not only from the Jews, he says, but also from the Gentiles, non Jews. And so remember the question. Remember the question. It started in 9 6 Has God's word felt? What did he say? No. In fact, let's look at it. 9-6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Remember, not all physical Israel is true Israel. And here we learn, shockingly, surprisingly, that not all true Israel is physical Israel. In other words, Gentiles are now included in Israel. Objects of mercy. It's not as though the word of God has failed because he never promised to save every physical Israelite. And now even us who are called are included in these objects of mercy. Not only Jews, but also Gentiles. This is really good news for us in this room who are 99%, if not 100%, non-Jewish. We have been included. We saw that actually already in Romans. Such important verses. Look back to Romans chapter 2. It's an important theme, sub-theme in Romans. Who is Israel? Who are the recipients of God's promises? Romans 2 verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. So, a total redefinition in the new covenant of what it means to be Jewish has nothing to do with outwardness and externals, it's all about the heart, regeneration by the Spirit. He says the same thing in chapter 4. Look at verse 16. says that's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring speaking of Abraham the father of the Jews not only to the adherent of the law but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all as it is written I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of God, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. He's the father of many nations. Galatians, really, the whole book's about this. He says there's neither Jew nor Greek in this new covenant community, in the church. Ethnicity no longer matters. We're all one in Christ Jesus. And then in 329, he says, if you are of Christ, in other words, if you're a Christian, then you are the offspring of Abraham, heirs according to the promise. So if you're of the Messiah, you are a co-heir. You get those promises because you're connected to Jesus. So who are these objects of mercy, Romans 9? Well, they're Christians. They're Jews and Gentiles who've been chosen and who are called and who therefore trust in the Jewish Messiah. Even us whom he called. Then he quotes the Old Testament, as he will do many times. Look at verse 25. Even us whom he called, not only Jews, Gentiles, verse 25, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Here he quotes Hosea 2 and Hosea 1. You remember Hosea? I know the kids learned about it this morning. Israel was forsaking God. They were rebelling. They were disobedient. And God tells the prophet Hosea to marry a prostitute who would be unfaithful to her husband. And that would be a picture of unfaithful Israel. And God would judge Israel. But judgment's never the last word with our God. He said he will judge and then he will restore them. So in Hosea, not my people are disobedient Israel. They're the ones God is judging, but he will redeem them. He will restore them. He promises to remove idolatry from their midst, to change them and to make a new covenant with them and once again be their husband and they will know the Lord. They will become my people. So notice the logic here. Romans nine twenty four. even us whom he called, Jews and Gentiles, as it is written in Hosea, God will restore his people. It's important for us to get that, as it is written. So Paul's saying, what Hosea was looking forward to is being fulfilled in you, Roman Christians. Peter does the same thing. Peter quotes the Old Testament to refer these promises, these passages to refer to the church. Notice what he says in 1 Peter 2. He actually quotes about four Old Testament passages. He says, you're a chosen race. That's from Isaiah 43. He says, you're a royal priesthood. That's from Exodus 19. You're a holy nation. Again, Exodus 19 with the forming of the nation of Israel. You're a people for his own possession. That's Exodus 19. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Here's Hosea. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So both Peter and Paul see the fulfillment of the prophet Hosea coming to fulfillment in the first century. One of the many examples in Scripture where we see Old Testament promises being fulfilled in Jesus and those connected to Jesus by faith. In other words, the church. Hosea is saying Gentiles are being included. This is really important for us to understand the big picture of the Bible. The Spirit through the Apostle Paul here conceives of Hosea's prophecy of the restoration of Israel, coming to fulfillment in the church, as it is written, as Hosea says. Here's how the theologian Sam Sorms puts it. Pastor in Oklahoma, he says, The calling of Gentiles from among every tribe, tongue, people, and nation is the prophesied restoration of Israel. For the church is the continuation and maturation of Israel's believing remnant. This is really important. A lot of Christians don't, don't agree with me here, just FYI. Sometimes they'll say, well, you're just a replacement theologian. No, I'm not a replacement. This is not replacement theology where the church replaces Israel. Not at all. This is where God preserves a remnant of his people, Israel, a remnant within Israel. And then he expands that remnant to include us, Gentiles. This is inclusion theology. This is fulfillment theology. So has God's word failed to Israel? By no means, he says. God never promised to save every physical Israelite. And now Gentiles become Jews through faith in Jesus. Romans 2, Romans 4, Romans 9. Hope you're following that logic. And then he gives us more Old Testament. Look at verse 27. So that's Hosea. Now verse 27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Quote, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So he quotes Hosea, which was a prophecy about the inclusion of the Gentiles. And now he quotes Isaiah which is about the exclusion of the Jews except for a remnant. Only a remnant would be saved, just like only a handful were saved at Sodom and Gomorrah. Paul teaches the inclusion of the Gentiles and the exclusion of many Jews. And really, this is just building upon what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 8, verse 11. He said, I tell you, many will come from East and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew chapter 1, he says much the same. This is right after the parable of the tenants where they killed the servants of the master and so the master finally sent his son to see if they would listen to the son and they killed the son speaking of how Israel had treated the prophets and how they even treated the son of God and here's how he concludes that parable verse 42 Jesus said to them have you never read the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone." This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. So first we have a new people, new people surrounded by Jesus Christ, the objects of mercy called by grace, Jews and Gentiles. Second, he's going to lay out a tale of two righteousnesses. So first we have works righteousness. See that in verse 30. To 33. What then shall we say then? What what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue a righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Notice what he says here. This is fascinating. This is important for us to get. What is he talked about in Romans 9, 1 to, to hear? God's sovereignty. God is the one who saves. He's totally sovereign. Notice who gets the blame here for not receiving a righteousness. The people. They pursued it as if it were based on law rather than based on faith. It's because the Bible teaches two things we've always got to keep together. God is completely and totally sovereign. And human beings are completely and totally responsible. You say, wait, that doesn't work. Well, we're finite. Some theologians call it a paradox or an antinomy. It seems like it contradicts on the surface, but Scripture teaches that those two truths are compatible there is mystery at the end of the day. We're talking about the things of God. Some people want to try to remove the mystery and say, well, no, God's not really sovereign. It's really all in our hands. Well, we need to let the tension stay there. Notice here, the Jews did not attain righteousness because they tried to gain it themselves. Romans 9, 1 to 29 is all about God's sovereignty. Now Romans 10, this and, and the next chapter are all about human responsibility. They did not pursue it by faith. They should have. They are responsible. Here's how Martin Lloyd-Jones Jones describes it. He says in Romans 9, 6-29, Paul explains why anybody is saved. It is the sovereign election of God. In these verses, this morning, he's showing us why anybody is lost. And the explanation of that is their own responsibility. They did not succeed in reaching righteousness. Why? Because we've seen no one can. We all fall short. We're all sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We cannot work our way back to God. And so they stumbled over the stumbling stone. That is Jesus. He became a rock of offense. It's what the gospels show us on every chapter. Denied by his very own people. We just read that in Matthew 21. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The cornerstone is the most important stone. Every other stone is situated around that cornerstone. That is Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1.23 says, The message of Christ was a stumbling block to the Jewish people. Why? Why was it a stumbling block? Well, the same reason it's a stumbling block today to many people. Because a person must first lay down any sense of being good enough to hear and receive the message of Jesus. For those not ready to let go of the myth of self-sufficiency, the cross is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense because it says you can't do it on your own. You need help. You need a savior. You cannot save yourself. He's the cornerstone. And everyone must reckon with this rock. Listen to how Acts chapter 4 puts it. Early church preaching it. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone and there is salvation in no one else for there was no other name given under heaven given among men by which we must be saved he's the cornerstone everything else has to go around him i wonder is that true of your life this morning is he your cornerstone is everything in your life and your thought and your actions and your job and your relationships, that it's centered around him? Is he the cornerstone or is he just kind of something that comes around Sunday for an hour? This imagery of the cornerstone means he's the most important one. All others take their place around this cornerstone. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must say, maybe you haven't trusted him yet. Today's the day. If you realize you're a sinner, if you realize you cannot earn your way to heaven, he stands with open arms, ready to receive. Turn from your sin, turn to Christ. He's the only Savior. If you do that, we want to know about it. Come talk with us. You want to talk, have questions? We would love to talk. That's works righteousness. Third point, gift righteousness. Chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Again, we see that tension of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Remember how Romans 9, 1 to 3 started? Paul is just so broken over his lost brothers and sisters that he would even take their place. And then he talks in 9, 6 through 29 about the fact that salvation is all of the Lord, all of grace. From eternity past to eternity future, and now he flips back and now he's praying and he says, My heart's desire doesn't say, Well, God's gonna save whom He will. What am I gonna do? No, he's praying because he knows God answers prayer and he wants, his desire is for them to be saved. I wonder, do you share Paul's heart? Again, are we broken for the lost? Do you pray for the salvation of lost people? You're praying for your one. If God answered every one of your prayers from the last week, how many people would be saved? Would anybody be saved? We need this balance. A trust in God's sovereignty, but an urgent prayer life and evangelism activity. Verse 2. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to God. To knowledge, Jewish people had a zeal for God and for the things of God. They were extremely zealous for the law and its right interpretation. And this was Paul right before the Lord knocked him off his horse. Galatians 1, you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. That's how zealous he was for the truth of Judaism. This, this false sect, this heresy named the church comes in. He tries to destroy it. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers, a zeal, but not according to knowledge. If there was ever zeal for the purity of the law, Paul was the poster boy. But he says it's not just a zeal. It's a zeal, but it's not according to knowledge. It's a misplaced zeal. It's a zeal based on falsity. And zeal without knowledge is a terrible thing. But it's important to say today, in our pluralistic culture, where a lot of people will say, if you're zealous, that's great, great for you. But zeal is not enough, because here we learn that our zeal can be misplaced. Sincerity isn't enough. Well, whatever, as long as you're sincere, no, because you can be sincerely wrong, as the Apostle Paul was, all amped up about the wrong things. Ignorance. And notice how in verse 3, they lack the knowledge. For being ignorant, that's what I mean by lacking knowledge, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They lacked knowledge about the righteousness of God. They were ignorant of it. They sought to establish their own. They did not submit to it. But this ignorance, this lack of submission to the righteousness of God is by no means an exclusively Jewish problem. This is the problem of humanity. including Christians sometimes, sadly. They tried to establish their own righteousness, their own right standing with God. It's a futile endeavor. We can never be perfectly righteous, and that's what God's required. I think it was Whitfield. remember, that said, I just assume build a rope and climb to the moon made of, with a rope made of sand than to establish my own righteousness. It's a futile endeavor. We can't. We all fall short. We cannot attain perfection. He says they did not submit to God's righteousness. What does that mean? Well, to submit to his righteousness means we first quit trying to establish our own. Calvin put it this way. He says, the first step to obtaining the righteousness of God is to renounce our own righteousness. That's where we've got to get first. Wave the white flag. Give up. Come to the end of your rope and there will be Jesus ready to catch you. This is what had to happen to Paul, right? Listen to Philippians chapter 3. Verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. There he is. There's his righteousness. He's trying to establish his own. He had plenty of reasons, worldly speaking. If the standard were horizontal, he was doing just fine. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Listen to his pedigree. Circumcised on the eighth day, just like the law said, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the purest tribes, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, the strictest sect, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. You couldn't look at him and say he was a hypocrite. Externally, he looked as if he were perfect. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus My Lord, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That word is probably a cuss word in Greek. In other contexts, it's used that way. Excrement, garbage, trash, all that he had going, his whole pedigree. Man, I was so proud of it. You know what it is? Poop. That's what the word means. We don't celebrate that, do we? I guess we do celebrate that if you're potty training. It's about the only context in which we celebrate that. Otherwise, isn't it just foolish? That's what he says. Look how good I had it. Rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's a gift, righteousness. What does it mean for us to submit to the righteousness of God? It means to give up us trying to attain it and receive the gift of a right standing through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's what the whole book of Romans has been about if you've been with us. But he's going to keep, keep it before us. We are justified, which means to be declared in the right. Justified by faith alone, not by works. We've seen it again and again. We'll just do a quick just look at a few passages. Go back to Romans 1. See how he starts this letter. What does it mean to submit to the righteousness of God? How did, how did the Jewish people get it wrong? How do we often get it wrong today? Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, that is the gospel, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Then he has all these chap- all this passages about the sinfulness of the Gentiles and the sinfulness of the Jews as well. And we're all under sin. And then he transitions in verse 21 of chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith, we receive it. It's a gift in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, declared in the right by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are counted as a gift, not as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, Who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Through faith, we trust him. That's it. We trust the Lord. And we receive the gift of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We cannot attain it, but we can trust the one who did. Lived 33 years without sin. Perfection. It's been called an alien righteousness. Not because it's green with big black eyes, but because it's outside of us. What do we all need? What is our fundamental need as humanity? A right standing. We can't get it. It has to come from somewhere else. It's outside of us. We do not produce it. We are given it. Imputed righteousness. And this gift righteousness of the gospel must be continually and repeatedly proclaimed. This is why it's such a theme in Romans. Romans 1, he's talking to the church. That's why he keeps coming back to it again and again and again and again. We're going to get practical. Romans gets practical eventually in chapter 12. But the apostle Paul, the spirit through the apostle Paul, does not want us thinking about what we are to do until he makes sure that we understand it's been done on our behalf. We are righteous through Christ, accepted as perfect. In Christ, there's nothing you can do to make him love you more. If you're in Christ, there's nothing you can do to make him love you less. But even as believers, don't we forget? So prone to wander, still fall back into self-salvation mode and try to establish our own right standing. Our default mode is legalism. And we end up pretending That we have it or we end up trying to perform in order to gain it. If we pretend, what we'll do is we'll minimize our own sin. We'll defend ourselves as if there's something to defend. We'll fake it. We'll hide our sin. We'll we'll blame others. We downplay our depravity. Or if we try to perform, what we'll end up doing is minimizing God's holiness minimizing his standard. We'll overestimate our own ability. We'll go into treadmill mode. What will happen is we will shrink the cross and grace will mean nothing. We try to be righteous in all kinds of ways. We've got job righteousness. Well, we work hard. I'm a good employee. I'm a good employer. We've got righteousness by our family. Well, I have good kids. Righteousness by our theology. I know the right things. I know best. Righteousness by our schedule. I'm so disciplined. I'm so busy doing good things. Righteous by our finances, I'm such a good steward. Righteous by our politics, I'm right. My guy's right. All the others are wrong. And we all fall into this, brethren and sisters. We've got to quit trying to attain what God has freely given in Christ. Give verse four. Four. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. To everyone who believes. For because they were ignorant of the righteousness of God, they tried to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Because Christ is the end of the law. For righteousness to everyone who believes. Well, what does that word end mean? The word is telos. What does it mean? Does it mean end like the law's over, or does it mean end like the goal, like he was the goal of the law? Yes. It means both. That's so why the new NIV, uh, the 20, I think it was 2011 revision, nails this verse because it says Christ is the culmination of the law for all who believe, meaning he's both the end and the goal. Think about it like a, like a finish, finish line at a race. What's the finish line? It's the telos. It is the end of the race. In other words, after that, the race is over. But it's also the goal of the race. So Christ is both the conclusion and the fulfillment, the termination and the completion. He's the goal of the law and that... Everything pointed to him. He is the law's intended goal, namely him and what he did on the cross and the new covenant. That's why he says in the Sermon on the Mount, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. I came to bring about that which it pointed to. That's why he says in Luke 24, when he rebukes those discouraged disciples on the road to Emmaus, didn't you know? The law pointed to me. Don't be slow of heart and foolish to believe. That's why he says in John chapter 5 that Moses wrote of me. The law wrote of him. The law pointed to him. Adam pointed to the last Adam. Jesus is the offspring of the woman who crushes the head of the serpents. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the offspring of Abraham who brings blessing to the world. He's the great high priest whom the priesthood pointed to. He's the temple. In his body is found the presence of God. The kings pointed forward to the king of kings. Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 who bore our sins. He's the virgin-born ruler. He's the shepherd of Israel. We could go all day. The law pointed to him. He's the goal of the law, but he's also the end of the law. Remember, the law means old covenant law. We've seen that in Romans. Flip over a page to Romans 6, verse 14. Sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under the law, but you're under grace. We're no longer, as new covenant Christians, we're no longer bound to the law of Moses. Look at chapter 7, verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you might belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we may serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. He's the end of the law. He establishes a new covenant making the old covenant obsolete to use the language of Hebrews 8. So we're no longer bound to the law of Moses. We now can eat pork and shrimp and pork wrapped shrimp. No more Sabbath commandment. No more priesthood. We're all priests. No more sacrificial system. It is finished. Christ is the culmination of the law. So we submit to God's righteousness because he is the end of the law for righteousness for all who believe. And friends, this Is for us. If you're a non-Christian here, this is the message for you. Don't try to attain your own. You never will. Trust in him. If you're a believer, the message is the same. Again, this is written to the church. We must maintain a distinction between works righteousness and gift righteousness. Pastor Tim Keller from Manhattan has been really helpful in this regard and He says, instead of, he doesn't use the language of works righteousness or gift righteousness, but he uses the language of gospel and religion. And he he applies it to various issues in our lives with acceptance. The issue of acceptance. Religion says, I obey, therefore I am accepted. The gospel says, I'm accepted by faith, therefore I obey. Huge difference. With motivation, religion bases motivation on fear and insecurity. The gospel, think of Romans 8, bases motivation on grateful joy. With obedience, religion says, I obey God in order to get things from God. The gospel says, I obey God to get God, to delight in him, to resemble him. With various life circumstances, religion says, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I'm angry. I'm angry at God. I'm angry at myself. I'm angry at others. Since I believe that anyone who's good deserves a comfortable life. The gospel says, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I'll probably struggle, but I know God is for me, Romans 8. I know that my punishment fell on Jesus. And that while God may use these difficulties in my life for my sanctification, he will exercise fatherly love in our trial. How do we handle criticism? Religion, when we're criticized, we're furious or we're devastated because it's so important that I and others think that I'm a good person. Threats to my self-image must be destroyed at all costs. Well, the gospel, when we're criticized, again, we'll struggle but it's not essential for me to think that I'm a good person because I've read the book of Romans chapter 3 and I know that I'm not good. My identity is not built on my record or my performance, but on God's love for me in Christ. With prayer, religion makes prayer largely asking things from God and really only get serious in prayer when things go wrong and I need something bad. In the gospel, though, my prayer life consists of generous stretches of just praise and adoration. What about our confidence? He says religion, our self-view swings between two poles. When I'm I'm having good days, I feel confident. But then I become proud and, and unsympathetic to people who are not as good as me. When I'm not living up to those standards, I might be humble, but I'm not confident. I feel like a failure. Well, what does the gospel do? Myself, you, is not based on my moral achievement. In Christ, I am simultaneously sinful and broken, yet accepted in Christ. I'm so bad that he has to die for me, and I'm so loved that he was glad to die for me. And so we have this deep humility and confidence that only the gospel can produce at the same time in the same heart. With our identity Religion says my identity and my self-worth are based mainly on how hard I work, how good I am. And so I must look down on those who perceive that I perceive as different or not as good or doesn't work as hard as I do. What does the gospel do? Well, my identity and my self-worth are centered on the one who died for me. I'm saved by sheer grace. And I can't look down on others. It's only by grace that I am what I am. We have to, if you're like me, daily, distinguish works righteousness from gift righteousness. He says here in this passage, we are the new people of God called by grace, Jews and Gentiles who are stripping away works righteousness to walk in the joy and freedom of gift righteousness.